good morning. Welcome to Straight Talking English. My name's Catherine. I'm going to be talking you through the AQA anthology of poetry, both the halves, and our AQA literature set texts. Today, bit of a special one, Robert Browning, double bill, with My Last Duchess and Porphyria's Lover. reason I'm doing this as a double bill is because, number one, I don't have to explain the context twice. Number two, what I'm going to say about the themes is relevant for both poems, because it's an element of Browning's style. So, we have moved forward in time, leaving the romantics behind, heading towards the Victorian era. Broadly, we consider this to be between 1837 and 1901. And this was a time in which poetry was not really that popular. The wildness of the romantics and their focus on emotions was now seen as far too experimental and we liked things that followed specific rules. Robert Browning did want to, he kind of wanted to bend the rules rather than break them. He was inspired by, well, his competition, to be honest. This is a time of melodramas, penny dreadfuls, scandalous stories of people's heads getting chopped off. Just look at the drama that's present in texts like Tess of the D'Urbervilles or Oliver Twist. So much going on and boring poetry can't compete with that. So Browning decided to create what he called a dramatic lyric, half play and half poem. So each of his poems operates as a monologue with a character speaking. He gets inspired by these characters from stories that he's read. History books, mostly. I've read this and I think it's interesting. He's also really interested in psychopaths and criminals and people that we today would call psychopaths and sociopaths. Quick disclaimer, under no circumstances am I making a comment on mental health. I am using the words crazy, psycho, things like that in a very informal and not linked to health way. This is a podcast which is 100% mental health positive, but it is not going to stop me calling the joke in my last duchess bit of a crazy. In fact, he wrote two books called Madhouse Cells, which was one book in two parts, in which he imagined he was walking around an asylum, meeting some of the patients and hearing their stories. It's it's very Victorian. It's a time when mental institutions were almost a tourist attraction, and you could go around and you could look at the patients and laugh laugh at them. One cool thing about Robert, Robert Browning is he was one one of the first voices ever recorded. He was invited to read out his poem, How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to AIX. I'm not quite sure how to say that. And it's one of the very first recordings of the human voice. Have a little listen to this. Good speed, cried the watch as the gate bolts undrew. Speed, echoed the wall to a scalloping through. Behind shut the postern, the lights sank to rest, and into the midnight we galloped abreast. Not a word to each other, we kept the great pace, neck by neck, stride by stride, never changing our place. I turned in my saddle and made its girths tight, then shortened each stirrup and set the peak right, rebuckled the cheek strap, chain slacker the bit, 
more Gareth, less steadily Roland the Whit. Wow, I can't believe that. Can't believe we've got one of the recordings of one of our pre-modern poets. That's crazy. Another good fact about him is that he is married to Elizabeth Barrett Browning. If you're doing the love and relationships half, that is the chick who wrote Sonnet 29, any of her poems are addressed to him, but his poems are not addressed to her because he's writing in character. So let's get cracking first with My Last Duchess, a kind of not really based on a medieval Duke of Ferrara who's called Alfonso II and his wife Lucrezia died very mysteriously. My Ferrara's mentioned in the epigraph at the start. Really, really cool character. I'm gonna go through it in order because there's so much going on here. Like, it is, there is just so much, to be brutally honest. It starts off with my last duchess. Possessive pronoun. This is me. This is my duchess. Everything is dehumanised. We don't actually learn anything about, like, what the painting looks like. You know, she's not sitting there through or, like, got a squirrel on a lead or something. It's her. She's the object. Fra Pandolf's hands as well. His hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. His hands are also kind of objectified, to be honest. Like, it's saying, like, Ikea furniture, his hands. It's all... So just things he owns, really. Loves name-checking, does our Duke. Fra Pandolf using the proper noun. We know that proper nouns assume prior knowledge, so when he's talking to this messenger, he's assuming that the messenger knows exactly who this guy is. He does say, I said Fra Pandolf by design. Well, yeah, of course you did. You're pretty arrogant, mate. The brackets are interesting. Around line 10, it shows an aside. So kind of a monologue within a monologue. Brackets are used to give additional information, but generally in quite a neutral tone. It's put so casually and so neutrally that it implies he's allowing the messenger a certain measure of intimacy, a certain measure of um, privilege. In fact, it's still his control. The irony is that he needs to show off, but he's saying, none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but he's the one who's trying to show it off it's just circular you might be able to tell by now that I have no love for this character he is the worst kind of awful but in a kind of gloriously panto villain kind of way give it a bit further the curtain I have drawn for you, but I, and seemed as they would ask me if they durst. So, I mean, durst, the only thing that comes to mind is that the singer from that awful band Limp Biscuit that people apparently like now, and ironically, I mean, cyclical, right? But it means literally if they dare. Putting him in this position of anyone is making a risk if they talk against him. How about the half flush or the spot of joy? I mean, literally, she's blushing. This spot of joy, I mean, why do people blush? It could be happiness, it could be embarrassment, it could be shame, she could be ill, but from all the nice connotations of that, the along her throat, starting to get a bit 
sinister in the semantic field of doing a murder. I wish you could see my face because I was grimacing, but alas, this is an audio podcast. It's really interesting because we've got a bit of a way through now with me picking out my favourite bits. But we can see the Duke has this, like, evil just below the surface. His sentences go against the rhyme scheme. got this really organised rhyme scheme. It's very controlled. It's almost Shakespearean. The couplets are what we call open couplets, which means they don't finish at the same time the lines do. The clauses run on through enjambment or enjambment to create this sense of natural speech. With the open couplets means it isn't fully controlled. His syntax, his sentence structure, goes against the rhyme scheme. It's like we've got what he naturally wants to say and his organisation and they're going against each other. This very polite person has this anger deep underneath. Well, not even that deep underneath, like literally like just underneath. But the reason that made me think of this is the bit I was about to talk about. We've got this variation in the length and complexity of the sentences and it helps us gauge his mood so we've got sir twas not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the duchess cheek perhaps for a pound of chance to say blah 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 she had a heart how shall i say too soon made glad too easily impressed she liked whatever she looked on and her looks went everywhere it's gone from being these rambling lines incredibly complex to being these short little clauses as his temperature is presented as rising the her looks went everywhere and you, I, I do put a little bit of research into the podcast it's probably not as much as i should but a fair amount this is what's called metonymy it's a logical extension of an idea so For example, if you see someone looking at dresses online and you assume tomorrow they're going to go out and buy a dress, then that's metonymy because you're making a logical extension of, oh, she's looking at dresses, she must want one. But it's not always correct. She could be looking at dresses because someone's asked her to check one or she's making a design. But by making a logical link and sticking with it that is your metonymy and that's what the duke's doing if her looks went everywhere she's getting everywhere and this is straight this is straight after the rhetorical question of how shall i say it's trying to make it lighter it's trying to make it polite it's trying to break up the rage and show the messenger that you know it's all a joke it's fine he does it again later when he goes sir twas all one you know let's just ah it's fine we're all just joking it's the equivalent of that guy who says something horrifically racist and then when you call them out it's like oh it's just a joke I'm saying that's happened far too many times to me. Have a look at the line. She thanked men. Good. But thanked somehow. I know not how. As if she ranked my gift of a 900 year old name with anybody's gift. Exclamation points. Says you're as broken 
with dashes, interrupting his flow. Flow, 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 but no jumping between ideas. He's interrupted by his own anger. The gift of a 900-year-old name. I mean, it can be argued that Browning is mocking people. Genuinely believe that that's important. <laughs> or it could be hyperbole to present the character's extreme emotion. Or it could just be part of the obliviousness of this character, who puts so much stock in possessions and not in human beings. It's interesting though, because we do get asked where is the power in this poem? Where is the conflict? I mean, it's called power and conflict for a reason. We've got the question about power where it comes to stooping. We've got the repetition of stooping. Even then there would be some stooping and I choose never to stoop. This vowel sound brings the emphasis. And if the Duke is forced to make a concession or a compromise, it means that the wife is in control as she's demanding this compromise or asking for some kind of compromise, which means at that point there is power from her side. The word stoop is interesting as well. I mean, it is a metaphor, but it's also physically painful. If you find yourself ducking down for ages, it will hurt. And perhaps that's the image that this character creates secondhand is the absolute pain and discomfort that compromising would be. Again, stooping, going from higher to lower, it's assumed he has the power, she's in the lower position, and he is forced to lessen himself to be on her powerless level. But then we've got the kicker. This grew, I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. There, this is the climax of the conflict between the Duke's dissatisfaction that this poor girl likes anything else in her life except him and it's arguably a euphemism that he had her killed or he killed her. The semicolons give a kind of a sense of finality to this. Then Claw's full stop. It's supposed to be shocking, it stands out, then all smiles stop together. He's now, he's now quite satisfied with this summary that he's given to the messenger. There she stands, as if alive. Well, that was it. I'm fine. I'm a lot happier with this painting. I mean, he could be commenting on, like, the quality of Fra Pandolf's handiwork, but the alive, which seemed so positive, so flattering at the start, is actually a little bit, now a little bit more sinister. It gets a little bit creepier as well, straight after when we've got this, you know, the twist in the end, that the visitor is, in fact, the messenger for the Count, and our Duke is negotiating with the Count for his next marriage. The idea of my last Duchess being that she's just one in a line. The poem, itse the poem itself is cyclical because we finish with Neptune taming a seahorse, we start with another artwork and we start with his marriage, we end with his next marriage. There is a certain sinister irony that he's promising that he will be so devoted to his next wife, his fair daughter's self, as I avow the starting is my object. Really? Really. He's, again, the dowry is the focus. It's 
all about money, it's all about the possessions. And if we look again at the tone, it's instantly got so much more polite. We've also at the end got the name dropping Klaus of Innsbruck. It's, uh, it's such a fabulous monologue, isn't it? We've got this cyclical, endless cycle of this man just having possessions, having objects. That one's done, I'm getting the next one. That wife is done, I'm getting the next one. It says a lot about Browning that he can create this character who is so villainous and it's done so impressively through changes in sentence length, changes in word choice and this constant toying with how this character's emotions are presented. He makes it really realistic and it's nice. It's very nice. I'm a huge fan of Browning. If I could have picked a poem, I would have done The Laboratory instead of this one for power and conflict. But I like it. I like it. Everyone else is just the background to this man. But speaking of active and passive people, nice link. We're going to now have a look at Porphyria's lover. So lovely. It's another murder poem. Bit of a dramatic one. Hope you like this one. It starts off with this very active figure of a woman coming in to her house. Pathetic fallacy as soon as we start. The sullen wind. The wind is vexing the lake. Vexing having this like mischievous childish connotation. Our speaker has his heart fit to break. Something has happened he's ready to go and then in glides Porphyria completely oblivious giving us some dramatic irony and everything she does is linked with warm comfort and action and our male speaker is just kind of sitting there passively observing. Bit scandalous before we start. Victorian society was a bit weird in the UK. We had on one hand this expectation that women, especially middle class or upper class women, are passive, are devoted, not sexually active by which I mean like not putting the moves on guys like not being involved with people before marriage it's very much this like submissive accepting role and Porphyria despite the fact she's quite a sympathetic character is what would be hated she's the one who comes in she's the one who cuddles the man she's the one who's got all of this action all of the agency at the start of this poem but the hypocrisy is that there's a huge huge amount of sex workers in London at this time and it's the hatred isn't necessarily for female sexuality but it's for overt sexuality being open about the fact you are attractive and you find others attractive and it is very clear that she has this smooth white shoulder this yellow hair she is obviously very very beautiful they are lovers they are not married they're not said to be in a relationship they are lovers it's interesting because it comes up in this idea that her gloves are soiled as in something pure and white and nice which is now like dirty and used maybe he's saying that she's used goods I mean horrible horrible though that is it could be the implication for that phrase she murmurs that she loves him Aww. 
But she has to set its struggling passion free from pride and vanitize this sever. We don't know what they've argued about. Something to do with her pride is holding her back. Something to do with her vanity is holding her back. My interpretation is that he's a bit rough. He is beneath her. But it's not fully explained. But then it starts to get a bit sinister already. We've got the passion would prevail. Because sometimes my anger gets the best of me. And one so pale. Well paleness corpse (laughs) we've got struggling and we've got a sense of her youth coming through my last duchess there's no mention of the age i mean it's kind of implied from the fact that she's so happy with flowers and little treats it does give an immaturity but the immaturity of porphyria potentially and the quote-unquote lover is repetition of and to start the sentences and 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 i've said this before it's like reading primary school creative writing and 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 nightmare night it takes till the end of the first page so line 31 one before they actually interact with each other be sure i looked up at her eyes uh so they've just been kind of in their own little world for a bit in terms of the power she's got the power at the start she's active he's sitting there but by the time we get to line 31 it's clear that she worships him he is in charge and I debated what to do mine mine well someone's got the case of the mine 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 haven't we it's a theory coming up again and again and again this recurring image of someone being possessive having their possessions she is perfectly pure and good and she's only pure and good once he's decided to kill her right okay then maybe to wipe out whatever kind of bad thing that she's done that's made his heart fit to break maybe because she is some kind of bad woman and needs to pay for it maybe he's a total psycho just wants to have this one perfect moment forever we don't know but once again the death is causing the purity her throat is little she is very little she is young we've got that technique of the shocking half line and strangled her just dropping it in so casually absolutely keeps up this tone of kind of disengagement but it's done so matter-of-factly that the shock value is contained within that tone he repeats pain no pain felt she i am quite sure she felt no pain like reassuring himself oh i totally did the right thing i didn't hurt her it was fine yeah of course it was fine there's this thing about the bud and the bee again really childish if a bee's buzzing around some flowers you're not sure if it's near the flower it's this really like cautious sort of prodding the flower and that's how he opens her eyelids to see if she's really dead but porphyria's happy clearly at being dead her blue eyes are laughing there isn't a stain could mean that they're still beautifully coloured rather than bloodshot or whatever but it could mean that this stain this bad thing that she's done has now been erased oh now we've got the power shift the roles have been reversed it's a complete inversion she is now propped up and she droops this is the the irony well 
It's this bit where you realise that this guy is a complete psycho. It is. Her one darling lit wish would be heard. The one thing she wanted was for them to hang out together and have the evening together. And now she has it forever. Woohoo! Oh god, this is awful. The thing about God at the end is... It's an interesting conundrum for us, but remember Victorian times, population of churchgoers is much, much higher. So religious imagery is obvious to people. And thus we sit together now, and all night long we have not stirred, and yet God has not said a word. Well, okay, if God hasn't told me it's bad to kill people, then it must be fine. God hasn't struck me with a thunderbolt, therefore I've done nothing wrong. Or... Was he really so out of it that he thought that God would intervene? Maybe he's playing as God because he's managed to capture this absolutely perfect moment in its entirety. It's numb. It's lacking regret. It's callous. It's kind of... Is this what modern people are like? Asks Browning. Is this what it's like in this age? I loved it. I love both of these poems. So much drama. Oh come on, it's better than neutral tones where he sits there looking at a pond feeling sad and I am going to do that one in a couple of weeks and poor old Thomas Hardy, everything's in Ikea white and grey for him. Partners, we're always going to talk about partners. For My Last Duchess, we could easily talk about Ozymandias faded power, historical power. We could talk about any of the poems that are presented as monologues, so prelude, uh, exposure. Honestly, I would be a little bit nervous about putting with this with one of the more obviously war poems, but it does actually fit really nicely with Checking Out My History and Kamikaze in terms of power of the speaker and choosing to present a narrative in a certain way. Porphyria's lover. Coming to the same story, please don't mix us up with one of the family ones, or it's just going to be completely the wrong impression. Let's face it. Goes quite well with the religious imagery in Love's Philosophy. Goes well with When We Two Parted, because it is kind of a breakup poem. Also kind of not really, because he now owns her cult. In terms of pathetic fallacy and colour imagery, neutral tones does work. In terms of obsessive love, if we want to think about love as obsession, Sonnet 29, Farmer's Bride is really lovely with that one actually. Someone telling a very ambiguously moral story. There's a lot you can do with the Brownings to be honest. I reckon I'll make my millions by persuading the BBC to do a series based on each of the Browning monologues and if we can possibly cast David Tennant in at least one of them then you're guaranteed that I will watch it. So yeah it's been a, it's been a long one this week doing both the Brownings together. Going to be continuing in a kind of pre-modern 19th century kind of way. Next we're coming up to Prelude, Neutral Tones, 29 and Farmer's Bride and then I think I'm gonna go post-war. Whoa! Up to the present day. Thank you very, very much for listening. Have a lovely evening.
and have a great time annotating.